Welcome to the Faith Assembly Podcast. Join us this Sunday at one of our four campuses. Call times are at 9 and 11 a.m. at our Somerville and Remount campuses, 10 a.m. at our North Charleston campus, and 11 a.m. at our Monk's Corner campus. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Larry Burbacher. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit faithishere.org. What a great celebration of our Lord's birth. And he came to bring peace on earth. Amen. What a joy to know him. Thank you so much, Kenyon. Children's choir, awesome job. Beautiful music today. Take your Bibles out and turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 1 through 7 this morning. And let us stand together for the reading of God's Word today. We're so glad to have each one of you here. If you're a guest, thank you so much for coming to worship with us this morning. And uh, just right out of the gate, Merry Christmas. It's an exciting time of the year, an exciting time to celebrate in church because it's all about Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 2 and verse number 1, And in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David. Because he belonged to the house and the line of David, and he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger, because there was no room for him in the inn. Let us pray. Father, we love you so much. We just thank you, mighty God, that we can come today to celebrate your coming, that you came to this earth for us, that a new king was being born, a new Lord was being born, I pray our hearts will be drawn to you in worship and in praise and adoration today. We thank you for your word and we give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Turn to someone, wish them a Merry Christmas, and then you may be seated. How many love this time of the year? Let me see your hand. You just get into it. My wife's rabid Christmas. She starts thinking about it in July, and, I'm, and, and she just loves the season. And I do too. I like it. I enjoy it. But she really gets into it. A lot of you ladies do. You decorate, get the house all ready. It's a festive time. It's a time of celebration, a time of joy. But Christmas has one of these unique abilities to both bring out the best in somebody and in some cases the worst. You know, we, 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 if things are going well, Christmas can be the most exciting time of the year. If, if you've done well that year, if your family's all together again, if there's no great tragedies, no great heartache, the lights are up, the festivities are going on, you're, you're out shopping for gifts, you're trying to think about what to get everybody else, and you think about the Lord. And, and, and for, for many of us, for most of us, it's probably a wonderful, great time. And yet at times, I think it might be, for some people, the very hardest time of the year. Because when they're going through Christmas, for them, it's, it's uh, painful memories of a lost loved one. 
And so you're gathered around the tree and, 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 and Santa, the, the, your, your dad who used to play Santa or your husband who played Santa, he's not there this year to pass out the gifts. And so it can be a very, very difficult time. And, and then amidst all the economic pressure to go out and buy gifts for your kids and for family and for all your friends, and yet some may have lost their job and finances may be tough and it's hard enough just to pay the rent and now I've got to think about buying gifts for everybody. And it can almost... Be painful to remind you of what you are going through at that present time. It kind of amplifies our poverty in the backdrop of all the commercialism that we see all around us. And, and for some of you, your kids are gone and they're scattered and so they're not going to be with you this year. And maybe for the first time you're empty nesters and, and no one's there and it's not going to be all the joy and celebration because the grandkids can't come and you're by yourself there by the tree. And some of you have gone through a broken relationship in the past year and maybe there's been a separation in your marriage and that's painful and it's hard. And so sometimes all this Christmas festivities may amplify our grief and we want to just say bah humbug let's just get through the year and hopefully next year will be better I want to take you back in time I I want to go back I think what we tend to do at times is we isolate the birth of Jesus and we reduce it all to a manger scene and we think about the shepherds and the animals and Jesus in the manger but we forget that Jesus was born into a, an amazing time in the history of our world you know Galatians said in the fullness of time God sent forth his son and so he is born at a very unique time and for you to understand the drama that surrounds the birth of Jesus Christ and the impact it made at that time and culture you've got to go back to a couple of kings and what it was like in that day and age. And so we're going to answer a couple questions this morning based on the backdrop of both Luke and Matthew. And first of all, we're going to answer the question, who is your Lord? Who is your Lord? Now, it starts out in verse number 1 of Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, in, in the days of Caesar Augustus. Stop right there. Caesar Augustus. There's a reason Luke includes him in the narrative right here. He doesn't go right to the birth. He wants to give you the backdrop. He wants you to give you the context or the world into which Jesus Christ was being born. Caesar Augustus ruled the Roman Empire from 24 B, 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. And his kingdom was massive. The Roman Empire dominated the landscape of the Mediterranean world all around there. It extended all the way from India on one side all the way to England on the other side. That's how vast the Roman Empire was at the time of the birth of Jesus Christ. Now Caesar Augustus had this incredible ego and he claimed that he was God. He's the Lord. He's the one that everybody in Rome was to worship. He believed he was God incarnate come down to rule and reign over the Roman Empire. And so he declared himself to be the divine king of salvation. That's the title he gave himself. I'm the divine king of salvation. And he said he would be the one that would establish universal peace and renew all things. It would all be done through Caesar Augustus. In fact, during this time, I'll just give you a little backdrop to see if you can see some similarities going on here. He had 12 days of Advent where they would sing songs to Caesar Augustus. 
And they would sing Caesar is Lord and all throughout the Roman Empire for about 12 days at a certain time of the year, they would sing songs to Caesar Augustus, worshiping him as the Lord over the entire world at that time. There were a high priest he had all throughout the Roman Empire and people would come and they would bring incense to those high priests. They would offer up sacrifices to Caesar Augustus because they believed Caesar Augustus had the power to forgive sins. In fact, it was said of him, there is no other name under heaven whereby men can be saved other than Caesar Augustus. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. He was powerful and ruthless when he would come in with his advancing armies and they would take over an area or a region. What he would do is they would come in and immediately if they would, all those in the city would declare Caesar is Lord, they would immediately be absorbed into the Roman Empire. But if they refused in any village to say Caesar is Lord, he would give the order and immediately they would all be executed right there on the spot. And so whole villages were wiped out by this ruthless Roman emperor. And how does he support his armies? He's got this this kingdom that goes all the way from India all the way to England. How does he support those armies to maintain peace in all those other lands? Well, he heavily taxes the people. And so the people are taxed completely uh, amazingly. and, And as a result, many of them would lose their land. Now, in that time, in that day and age, you did not want to lose your land. That's the one thing you had that had been passed down from generation to generation. But if you could no longer pay your taxes, your land could be taken from you, and you would be forced to take another job or another vocation, often in another area. Remember Joseph? Where's Joseph living? He's in Nazareth. Where's his hometown? Bethlehem. He's going to leave Nazareth and go down to Bethlehem. What does Joseph do? He becomes a carpenter. Somewhere along the line, himself or his family has lost their land because of the heavy taxation, because they are extremely poor, and so they've got to go back for the census to their homeland in Bethlehem, the city of David. Lost everything. Very, very poor. And so you have this backdrop at this time when Jesus Christ is going to be born. It's very difficult economically for all the people. And so they feel this heavy oppression by this nation called Rome over all the lands that have been conquered around the world. Caesar came to bring peace to the world, but he only brought poverty and he only brings pain. The entire empire was resounding now with the sounds of Advent. And they're singing, Caesar is Lord. Caesar rules the world in peace. Now pick up your story in Luke chapter 1. Look if you will, or Luke chapter 2, look at verse number 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee and Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary and was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for a baby to be born and she she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in the manger because there was no room for him in the inn. Now you have this massive Roman Empire and somewhere in the corner of the empire there's a small ethnic minority in the Roman Empire where a baby is being born. 
Now normally this would not mean a thing because babies are being born all the time. But this story is not just about a teenage pregnancy, uh, but it's about an empire that is now saying Caesar is Lord, uh, but now people are going to begin to say Jesus is Lord. News begin to spread. And now someone else there declaring to be the Lord. The shepherds take the news. The wise men take the news. It begins to spread. And and no longer is it Caesar is Lord. Now it's Jesus is Lord. And all of a sudden you see the entrance of a radically different kingdom. Caesar's Rome was about crushing people. It was about oppression. It was about bondage. Christ's kingdom is about liberation. It's about loving people. In Luke chapter 4, it says he came to preach good news to the poor. And so you've got these nations that have been conquered by Rome who are very poor, who are losing their lands. And all of a sudden, Jesus is born, a a new Lord is born, uh, and now he brings good news to the poor. Caesar was declared to be savior of the world. Pick it up with verse number 8 in this story. And there were shepherds living out in their fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good tidings of great joy that shall be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. A Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. Caesar declared he was Lord. Caesar declared he was the Savior. But there's a new kingdom entering in. Jesus Christ the Lord. Luke chapter 2 is about a Savior. And it's about a new Lord. And it's about worship unto him. Do you realize that, that in, amongst the slaves, the most common story that was shared among the slaves in the early history of America was the story of Christ's birth? And they would tell that story again and again because it was declaring in some way their liberation. A Savior's been born. Unto you, a Savior's been born. Are you having trouble paying your bills? You feel like you're being crushed at this time of the year? I've got great news. Unto you, a a Savior's been born. If you're a single parent and you feel like you can't go on another day and you're struggling to just get by day after day, I've got great news. A Savior's been born. If you're oppressed by someone and you feel like there's a Caesar putting his thumb down upon you and on your life and you can't seem to crawl out from underneath them, I've got great news. It was announced on that day. Unto you, a Savior's been born. Caesar will not have the last word. Jesus does. Jesus Christ's reign goes on and on forever. And so in the middle of this cruel, oppressive Roman Empire, a little Jewish girl says, I've got a king inside of my womb. And the Savior's being born. Who gets the last word? Caesar has his day and Caesar dies and he passes away. He doesn't win. Love wins out. Jesus Christ lives forever. His kingdom knows no end. If your life, it seems like now Caesar seems to be winning and you're going through very, very difficult times and you're feeling oppressed, remember that in the corner of an empire, 
in the city of David, a Savior has been born. Unto you a Savior is born, Christ the Lord. That's great news today, church. So we've got to ask ourselves the question, who's our Lord? Who's my Lord? Who's in charge of my life? And then there's a second question I want to address today, and it's simply this, who's your king? Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, who's your Who's your king today? Now, Luke talks about lordship. He brings up the personality of Caesar Augustus. Matthew's going to have a different take on the birth of Jesus Christ. He's going to talk about someone else who declared himself to be king of the Jews. His name was Herod. Let's read about it. Matthew 2 and verse number 1. And after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Bethlehem, to Jerusalem, and asked, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, you've got to, if if Caesar Augustus is the Caesar over all the Roman empires, lord of the Roman empire, and his kingdom reigns from India all the way to England, how can you cover and rule over that massive landmass? Well, you've got puppet kings. And so everywhere you take over a nation or over a kingdom or over another country, another continent, you would establish a puppet king over that area. And so over the area of Palestine, his puppet king is a man by the name of Herod. We know him as Herod the Great. And he's not called Herod the Great because he's a great guy. He's actually a ruthless, terrible guy. Herod the Great is ruling over all of that area. He's half Jewish, half Edomite. So he's not of the royal line of David. So when Herod the Great is put over Israel, put over the Jewish nation, they despise him. They hate him because he's not a full-blooded Jew. And so Herod the Great is now going to rule. He's absolutely a fierce warrior. He besieged Jerusalem in B.C. 37, and he massacred thousands of Jews when Rome went in and conquered that land. He maintains power by squashing rebellions and crushing any kind of unrest that comes along their way. And so they call him Herod the Great. Now, Herod was famous for a lot of different things. He is an incredible builder and an architect because Herod has this massive, huge ego. And so you see all across Palestine and even around the Near East, his constructions, his structures. Uh, Legend had it that King David when he was running from King Saul, hid in a place called Masada. So Herod the Great says, you know what? David hid there. I'm going to build a palace on top of this mountain. And so he goes on top of Masada, and he builds this very lavish palace. Now, if you can see the picture behind me, you get an idea. There's no way to get up there. It is huge. I've been to Jerusalem a couple of times. Masada is a fascinating place to visit. But you get there by a cable car. And so I had a cable car, and I rode to the top, and we got out and walked around, and then we rode back down. He builds a whole palace on top of this mountain. He, he's paranoid. He's afraid everybody's going to get him, so he would have palaces throughout the empire. So if, if he's ever attacked, he could always have a place to hide or relax in luxury. And this palace is magnificent that he builds up there. It has hot and cold baths. Now, there's no water around this place. He reroutes rivers to fill the cisterns at the bottom of Masada, and his slaves would go up and down bringing water. He had a whole system of bringing the water up to the top of the city. Had hot and cold running, uh, not running water, hot and cold baths, Italian columns, frescoes all around. It is absolutely a gorgeous city on the top of this 
mountain out in the middle of nowhere. He builds a palace. He figured out a way to preserve food. And when they were excavating Masada in 1960, they found dates and figs that were still preserved from the time of King Herod. In fact, they even, the, the archaeologists ate some of the figs. Of course, immediately they looked for Herod's bathroom up there. But, but you can imagine preserving the figs that long. And so he, he builds this massive city on top of Masada. He builds a state-of-the-art city on the coast. And this, this city was swampy and muddy, and there was no way to build a harbor there. The largest harbor at that time was in Athens, about 60 acres. He builds a harbor, 520 acres. And he goes down into the marsh and down along the water, and he digs 80 feet deep and pours concrete. So it's an engineering marvel to get fresh water to the city. He has an aqueduct built, 19 miles long. And so he is this master builder. Uh, he names the place Caesarea. You talk about a brown noser, Caesar, here's Caesarea, here's your city. And, and he overlays the city in marble so when you come in from the coast, the city would just glisten. They had a hippodrome in there, which was their big coliseum. They have excavated now three, 350,000 seats. And they believe that's not the total size of it. They believe it could have been as up to a half a million people could be seated in the hippodrome for their Roman coliseum events. You think the big house in Michigan is big, 110,000 seats, Hippodrome, 350,000-seat auditorium. Builds another city called the Herodian. And so to build the city, he wants it high, so he builds a mountain first, and then he puts the city on top of it. And, and uh, remember the story when Jesus Christ is standing on the Mount of Olives, and he's teaching his disciples, and he talks about mountains. And he makes this statement, and there's the Dead Sea in the background, and Jesus Christ says, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you will say into this mountain, be thrown into the sea, and it'll be done. Isn't that incredible? Right there, you got Herod's mountain and city. And Jesus said, all you got to do is have faith like a little tiny mustard seed. Say to this mountain, be thrown in the sea, and it'll be done. He builds all across the empire. Uh, he built his most famous, one of his most famous works is Herod's temple. So he's going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And he expands the Temple Mount and makes it larger. And he puts this massive temple on top of the Temple Mount. It started building in 19 B.C. and ended the construction in 64 A.D. So it took him uh, almost 80-some years to build this city. He had 18,000 laborers. Now, he, what, there was no chisel. The sound of a chisel was never to be heard in the city of Jerusalem, the capital of that area. And so they would quarry these huge, massive stones. And I went down beneath when we were in Jerusalem. We walked through the tunnels, and we saw these massive stones uh, weighing thousands and thousands of tons. They're, we don't have equipment today that can move those stones. But they would quarry them in another mountain range and move those stones all the way into Jerusalem to build the city, uh, to build the uh, Herod's temple. It was said, he has not seen a temple of Herod. He who has not ever seen the temple of Herod has never known what beauty is. He is absolutely one of the richest men to ever live on the face of the earth at any time in history, King Herod. He's the king when Jesus Christ is being born. Not only is he an incredible builder and architect, but he is also paranoid. He thinks someone's always out to take his kingdom. And so he's trying to protect and defend his own kingdom. He has 11 wives and 43 kids. Guys, think of men, think about that. 11 wives. I can't handle one. 
Can you imagine having 11 wives, 43 kids, and, and on one occasion, he becomes suspicious of one of his wives. So he's going to go on a trip, and when he leaves, he tells his assistants, if I die on this trip, I want you to kill her so she's also dead. When he gets back, he arrives back safely, he's alive, he's fine, but he noticed that wife seemed a little distant. <laughs> and so he has her killed anyway, and kills her right then on the spot. He has a son who he drowns in the family pool because he's worried he might be trying to take the kingdom. And throughout the course of time, as he's ruling and reigning, two other sons he executes and assassinates. Uh, a dispute rose among religious leaders, and so to settle the dispute, he just killed them all. Just kill all the guys. Don't, don't let any of them live. And uh, he, it, it, getting closer to the end of his death, he's already built the Hippodrome in Caesarea. He has the Jewish priest locked up in the Hippodrome. He says, and he's very ill at this time, he says, when I die, I want you to kill all the priests in the Hippodrome so there will be mourning at the time of my death. No one's going to cry for him. They might cry for the priest. And so I want mourning going on when I die. And so he's got this incredible ego, and he's very, very paranoid. Now, look again at Matthew 2 and verse 1. It says, and Jesus was born in Bethlehem during the time of King Herod. Now, get the scene in your back mind, if you would. Now the Magi come in, and what do the Magi say? We've come to worship him that is king of the Jews. Herod says, I'm king of the Jews. I'm the only king around here. And, and, and the Bible says that he becomes very perplexed. A, a better word for that would be agitated or disturbed or shaken. And it's, it's kind of like a washing machine on that heavy-duty cycle. He is very, very angry. He is agitated. He is upset. Because Herod's title was king of the Jews. Now, you've got to ask yourself, why would Herod feel so threatened about a baby born being born in the corner of the empire? He's in his late 60s by now. He's not that far off from dying himself. Why would he have all those babies slaughtered in the city of Bethlehem trying to wipe out this baby they said was going to be the new king? He's obviously no threat to his kingdom. He's ruling and reigning over the entire area. But it goes beyond a, a, a power struggle of kingdoms. It really is a struggle between good and evil or the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. It is a lot greater battle that is going on at this time. And so the question today is, who is your king? And sometimes when I give that altar call, that invitation, we struggle with, am I going to really make Jesus Christ the king of my life and the Lord of my life? Am I going to worship him as Lord? And am I going to make him my king? And so we struggle with that. And the same struggle that Herod faces goes on within every single one of our lives. Am I really going to humble myself and submit myself to somebody else? It's always a struggle between good and evil, between the devil and his kingdom and the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdoms of our Lord and the kingdoms of our God. To a marginalized group outside of Jerusalem who are reduced to poverty, it's good news. A new king has been born, and Herod, you're going down. A new king has come on the scene. And, and it's amazing that when, when God chooses to make his announcement, he doesn't make it to religious leaders or, or, or generals or, or the wealthy. He appears to shepherds. 
Shepherds stink. They weren't very popular. No one likes the shepherds. But that's who God sends his angelic choir to, is the shepherds. And they announce there's a new king in town. A a new king is being born. The Herods of this world will burn out. They will fade away and they will die. But there is a new kingdom uh, that was established when Jesus Christ came on this earth. And I want to tell you, it goes on forever and ever and ever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. And so you got Jesus Christ. He's more than just a manger scene that we set underneath a tree. He is born during the reign of Caesar Augustus. He is born during the reign of King Herod. He is born into an age of incredible poverty. But it's good news. uh, There's a new king on the block. And it tells me the oppressor doesn't win. Herod doesn't get the last word. It is a story of hope. That's what Christmas is all about. It's a story of hope today. It's not about ruthless power and buildings and monuments. Uh, His kingdom is about love, and it's about giving, and it's about grace, and it's good news. And so the question we've got to ask ourselves today is, who is your king and who is your Lord? Who are you going to serve today? Now, here's the ramifications of it. The ramifications are simply this. If we say yes to the new king, if we say yes to that new Lord, a few things are going to happen. First of all, it's going to threaten your security. Just like Herod had all his palaces and he he was so paranoid of anybody else who might come in and try to overthrow his kingdom. Just like he's paranoid and has all these things going on. If you are going to really make the decision today to make Jesus Christ your king and your Lord, it threatens your own security. You may think to yourself right now, well, I've got, I'm accustomed to my life as I built it up. I like my little home. I like my little family. I like my little empire. I like my little world. I like everything just fine as it is. Why do I need God? I've got a job, got a bank account, got my family, got my friends. Everything's going just fine. But all that will come tumbling down. The only kingdom that will remain is Jesus Christ. All your stuff, burned up. All your possessions, burned up. Gone. Never again. And yet we work so hard to build our security. I work so hard for my future. We work so hard to surround ourselves with the trappings of this life. But the bottom line is there's a new king in town. Are you going to submit to him or not? Because when I do, everything belongs to God. It's all God's. If you're going to respond to this new king and Lord, it's going to threaten our pride. Can you imagine Herod building all these massive palaces in these massive cities and he builds them out in the middle of nowhere all as a monument to his own ego. Look at me, look at what I have built. I am Herod the Great. But listen to what the word of God says. God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Pride for many can be a great deterrent to following Jesus Christ. You say to yourself, Boy, if I go down to the altar, pastor gives an altar call, I come down to invite Jesus Christ into my heart, what are are people going to think? I've got a reputation to maintain. 
They may think I'm a sinner. You are a sinner. You're not fooling anybody. And, and, and so, so what happens is when I make that decision to follow Jesus Christ, he resists the proud, but he's only going to give grace to the humble. And so it's when I say, I can't save myself, and I don't have the answers to all my problems in life, and, and, I, can't, and I can't do it by myself. I am nothing in the eyes of God, and yet I come to Jesus Christ, I humble myself, uh, and he lifts the humble up. He says, I'll give you life, I'll give you hope, I'll give you a future. There's grace to the humble. The only opinion that matters is heaven's anyway. It doesn't matter what man may think. And then the third thing, it will threaten my control because we like to control everything around us. We like to be in charge. In his day and age, Herod controlled the government. He controlled all the religious systems. He controlled all the economic systems. Herod controlled it all. He was a very powerful, strong leader. He controlled everything. But now there's a new king. And the question is, are you going to yield control of your life to him? You know, we we like the idea of a tiny baby in a manger because that's non-threatening. I can come and I can listen to the kids' choir and I can come to church and I can do certain things uh, because that's very non-threatening. But if you're really going to accept him as he came as king and as Lord, he's got to control your life. He runs your life. We like the baby, we're comfortable with that, but he wants to take over the driver's seats. We want to take him on board as a passenger in our car and put him in the back seat somewhere, and we use Jesus as a crutch whenever we need him, but Jesus Christ, when he comes into your life, he says, move over, I'm driving this ship from now on. So is he really going to be your king and your Lord? He will control and you lead your life if he will be your king only through Jesus, though, the good news is you find true peace and you find joy and you have hope for your future. It is only in the Lord Jesus Christ. The dilemma today is the same dilemma that Herod had. There's only room for one king. There's only room for one king. And so when they say, where is he that is born? King of the Jews. Herod's mind thinks, I'm king of the Jews. I'm the Lord. I'm the ruler. But the reality is there can only be one king. There can only be one Lord. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? More than just a tiny baby, more than just a sentiment, more than just songs we sing, more than Christmas carols, is he going to be your Lord? And is he going to be your king? Because that's why he came. Sometimes we slip into a little bit of fatalism. I opened up with some who are going through difficult times. And maybe you're hurting financially right now. And maybe you're separated from family right now. And maybe you've gone through the loss of a loved one right now. And maybe you're hurting right now. And sometimes Christmas kind of amplifies all those emotions and all those feelings and all that pain. And sometimes you wonder in your mind, how long is Herod going to be on the throne? How long am I going to go through what I'm going through right now? But the reality is Herod died within two years 
after he slaughtered all the babies in Bethlehem. But Jesus Christ lives on forever. So Jesus Christ is a message of hope. He's a message of joy to the world the Lord has come. He's a message of peace. He's a message of love in the midst of all the hatred and anger. He's a message of love. Caesar does not get the last word. Herod does not get the last word. I want to tell you, for you, divorce does not have to have the last word. Uh, Cancer does not have to have the last word. AIDS does not have to have the last word. Unemployment does not have to be the last word. I want to tell you, God has the last word. And it's Jesus Christ, for unto you a Savior has been born. Unto you a Son has been given. And He will be King and He will be Lord. And so the only question to really answer today is what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? Are you going to make Him your King? Or are you going to make Him your Lord? I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes if you would. Hallelujah. Thank you, mighty God. It's time to make a decision today. We've enjoyed singing, listening to music. It's grand to sing about our Lord and Savior, to worship Him. But it's got to be personal for you. This is not a pageant that we come in and spectate and view. This is something we participate in because Jesus Christ is my Lord and he's my king. But if you haven't surrendered your heart and life to him, if you're trying to hang on to control, if your pride won't allow you to humble yourself today, if, if, if you want your security and you want to stay, keep things the same the way they are, same old, same old, then you won't respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're ready to receive him, If you're ready to make him your Lord and your Savior, his kingdom will come in. And the Bible says he takes you out of that kingdom of darkness and brings you into the kingdom of his marvelous light. But there has to be that time when you humble yourself and say, Jesus, I need you. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. I want you to take my sins away. I want you to live inside of my life. And then take over the wheel of my life. Take over the rule. Take over the throne. Lord, I, I, I step aside. I invite you to come in and rule and reign inside of me. That's the kingdom of God. Thanks for listening to this weekly podcast. Check out faithishere.org for podcasts and videos of our previous messages.